Hey everybody, welcome back to March Mad Men. In this one, the pairing of William Lustig's Maniac and Amy Holden Jones' The Slumber Party Massacre prompts a pretty heavy discussion of sex and violence in horror movies. Hope you find it interesting wherever you personally land on the subject. Thanks for listening. All right, we are back and I have the Golden State Cerveza, a Golden Road Brewery. Uh, I think this is just a lager. It's not my one of my usual IPAs, but I'm eager to try it. I have no idea what it tastes like, but uh, it looks like a California classic. What are you guys drinking? Don't get me stirred on Golden Road. <laughs> uh, I doubled down. I did come back with my pizza port uh, chronic sitting on sitting on deck, and I have some some Cabernet. So I'm expecting this to be a good couple of rounds we have ahead of us. Yeah, I actually brought a, a second beer as well. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's it's that's that's how the pros do it, man. Yep, yep. All right, Vic, are you done with your I, I, your quad? Well, so funny you should say that. So I have in the the refrigerator downstairs a a uh, bourbon barrel quad, which is an outstanding beer. But after finishing that Golden Drock Imperial Stout, I'm thinking better of it, and I have gotten a New Belgium Triple. Oh, wise! Oh, yeah, yeah, way to downshift. Yeah, should this stretch into the into the wee hours? I'm not above getting that out and then just just regretting it for the rest of the day tomorrow. Oh. There you go. Let's let's dr- let's drive them to it. Come on, go. Let's drill in. Ooh, that sounded good. That sounded good, Vic, on my end. So let's drill into these next two classics and see if we can get Vic to to overdo it tonight. I, I love when the sober move is to just go from a quad to a triple. That's that's like the very judicious choice. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, I did want to point out, you guys can see it, but I am drinking from my mini skull mug. I have a, a huge skull mug, which will, which has come out uh, in the course of our various other shows. And maybe later in the season, uh, the big skull mug will come out. But this is more of a skull jar. I was going to say, yeah, for, for, the, for the listener, you should know that it's really a skull mason jar. He's drinking mm-hmm. out the, the hillbilly equivalent of a horror fan's. Uh, chalice. You're not wrong. I mean, in fact, there was a, a salsa in that jar. Um, it had, had a cap, and, <laughs> and I turned it into a drinking glass. But um, I'm I'm pleased with it. Well, I think we're we're ready to go. Um, this this will be fun. I think at, at least for old school horror movie loving guy that I am. And of course, we are in the old school category or regional, if you're thinking about this, like the NCAA tournament. Our second matchup digs into the grubby past of the slasher genre, back to its drive-in days with a pair of films in the old school bracket. Of course, we have Maniac 1981, which is a seven seed, going up against Slumber Party Massacre, which is not far off. It's a 10 seed. Let's see how this shakes out. I will tell you about Maniac first. It was directed by William Lustig, who also directed Maniac Cop, which we recently booted from the tournament, and Uncle Sam, which is a movie I saw on the festival circuit back in the day. I don't, I don't think a lot of people have actually seen it. I remember it being pretty good, but I, I'm actually a little surprised that Lustig doesn't have 
more directorial credits considering the impact of the few that he he has. It's not like Bill Lustig has gone away. He's been a producer and a passionate supporter of the genre for many years. Maybe he just didn't take to the demands of directing, which can be pretty onerous. Maniac stars Joe Spinell, who is utterly committed to his role as a disgusting creep who can briefly pass for a normal person if he tries his very hardest. And I think that's one of the film's more discussion-worthy elements. He gets dates with a woman who is light years out of his league, played by the charismatic Caroline Monroe. This film is mostly famous for the involvement of Tom Savini, however, who, in addition to providing iconic gore effects, also has a small role as one of the maniac's many victims. Of course, the film did inspire a 2012 remake, which is also in our tournament, and was the subject of the most tortured but hopefully entertaining voting process that we've ever had so far. (laughs) The original Maniac is a bit of a love-hate film, I think. Maybe I'm putting it lightly. People who who get it, though, acknowledge its unique strengths in the slasher subgenre. In fact, it's been cited by some media outlets as one of the greatest slasher movies ever made. Esquire put it at 18 in their list of the 55 scariest movies of all time. It was ranked at 44 in Paste Magazine's 50 Best Slasher Movies of All Time. And Spinell's completely unselfconscious performance gets a lot of love, too. Tom Becker of DVD Verdict said that the film is so effective as due in no small part to the performance of Joe Spinell as Frank, the schlubby-looking guy whose darkness overwhelms him. This is not the standard amateurish paint-by-numbers horror villain turn. Spinell creates a fully formed portrait of this monster that goes far beyond the surface. He mutters to himself talks to mannequins, growls like an animal when stalking his prey. Yet he can be charming as well. And the pairing of Spinell and Monroe as lovers has a definite quality to it. It's not entirely unbelievable. Had Maniac been more of a mainstream film, Spinell might have been remembered as one of the great horror heavies. I'm pretty much in alignment with everything that Tom Becker of uh, DVD Verdict said there. So I'll leave it there for now. Of course, I I can weigh in more on this film, which I must admit is one of my favorites in this tournament. I think I'm on an island there. Let's hand it off to Rich first. Rich, tell me your thoughts um, about Maniac. The first note I have at the, the top of my list was is an appealing grittiness, an impressive schlubbiness. Like, it's almost a tagline on its own. I sort of agree with everything you're saying. This is a movie that's really hard to get your fingers around if you enjoy it, because I just feel like there's a lot of reasons to not like this movie and I and also and not like the, the remake. And yet there is something that I find compelling about it and that the, the I really enjoy. I mean, it's hard not to compare the two films, especially having watched the the remake first. And and I want to judge this thing on its own credentials. I will say that that in this version, and I'm used to watching things where I've seen the original first. Uh, This is a rare case where where I'm doing the reverse. I do think that the Anna story itself is is a lot less developed in this. It's more repetitive and kind of just focused on building up to its its 
it's a pivotal moment in terms of their relationship. It's much harder to believe that this version of Anna would accept a date, let alone multiple dates with Frank. You know, there's nothing that's especially charming about him. And like in a weird way, like that is like the least believable part of, of this movie. And I'd also say that like the presentation of like the, the quote unquote, like art world is easier to buy in on the, the new version as well. But that said, there is a lot where you can see where the inspiration for the the remake came from this movie. And that's because it's kind of like a, a deep well, like the, the idea that they did the first person point of view when they did the, the 2012 remake, I think is directly coming from moments such as, you know, Frank, like strangling a, a prostitute who's changing from to faces of, of his past. Like there's so much that's embedded in the psychology of this character that you can see why the the next logical step for for a filmmaker to take this story would be to literally put you in the in the head of the killer. I mean, like the psychosis of his character is so baked into the character that you're actually given the room to have empathy for him because you genuinely get the feeling that he is truly operating outside of his control and is giving in to impulses that he himself doesn't want to to give into which i think is like the saving grace of this movie in terms of not making you feel filthy for enjoying any any part of it i do want to note that uh i watch a lot of movies on uh captions uh many of these slasher films i've, I've watched on captions i've never seen a movie where the phrase man moaning was was so frequently brought up in the closed <laughs> caption. There is so much heavy breathing in this film. It is truly astounding and animalistic, as as you pointed out. And um, and I just want to, uh, one little anecdotal note I want to throw out is that the effects of it are great. I was particularly stunned, especially for the error of an incredible uh, shotgun blast to the head that happens uh, later in the film. And let me tell you something. I was actually a producer on a small, unremarkable horror film. Um, we did have some money and we got the movie made. And at one point we did have a effect that called for an exploding head. We had a prosthetic head, an air compressor, and a huge production team holding up plastic sheets like we were front row at a SeaWorld dolphin show. And we waited and waited and waited for the head to blow. And when it did, it was a disappointment. I have the proof on film. But I will say that this movie, I don't know what Savini did, but this is how you blow up a head. I want to see that again. All right, Vic. Why don't you uh, pretentiously shit all over this fucking classic? (laughs) Don't mind if I do, John. I will say up front that the fact that Spinell and Lustig are able to make this character in any way understandable is a credit to them. I liked this better than the remake. And I think that it, one of the things it clarified for me is that the, the POV camera was probably a mistake. Although rich, I, I agree with your assessment of how they probably arrived at that choice, but I think that was probably a mistake. I think that this is, uh, this is a better movie than that for a lot of reasons. It's not a good movie, but it's, but it's a better <laughs> movie than that. Um, Joe Spinell is like a sleazier Ron Jeremy, and I didn't think that was possible. Uh, 
it is impossible to talk about this movie without talking about how ridiculous his relationship with Caroline Monroe's Anna is. Like, every time he calls her, she's like, I can be ready in five minutes. Like, just just please take me back to the clam casino. What <laughs> the fuck? Really? I, okay, fine. Um, Savini's makeup effects are outstanding here. I thought the ending played much better in this one. Again, in, 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 not that this shouldn't be judged in terms of its own merits. The ending is fucking weird, and it works. Yeah. But as much as I want to have sympathy for this character, like I come back to the same issue that I had in the first one, which is that his issues with his mother are certainly dark and unpleasant. It doesn't justify this character becoming this person. And so I, I don't know. I, but literally, this is what I this, 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 read you the last three notes I have. Savini's makeup effects are outstanding here. The ending played much better in this one. I need a shower. <laughs> That's not so an uncommon reaction. I believe I've even said previously, like if this came up, that you know, yeah, wanting a shower is almost price of admission <laughs> with watching this movie. Yeah. But 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 you know, I guess it's subjective whether you're open to that experience or not. And I will double back to that when we vote. But, uh, but yeah, that maybe that means different things to us. You got it. I also, I just want to see how many times I can say clam casino in this podcast. <laughs> because that is a, is a deeply amusing pairing of words. Indeed. I said, uh, my, my assumption is just that that's what dating was like in the 80s. Like, there were no cell phones. Like, you had to make plans on the spot. So it's like right. someone called you up and was like, hey, you want to go catch a picture? And you're like, I'll be there in 10. Like, you could just drop everything. No one was like, no one was <laughs> texting you. There was no, like, prolonged exchanges. Like, you just did stuff. That was true that the, the social calendar was you could get a phone call with a better offer, but if it wasn't already in your appointment book, it wasn't going to, you know, take precedence. I'm not in the camp that say, you know, that would say this is a logical pairing, um, Caroline Monroe and, and Joe Spinell in this movie. And it's definitely a stretch, but you know, there was certainly at that time, I don't know if rugged is the word, but, you know, he has sort of an old school masculinity about him. Certainly kind of a, no kind one. Of a Ron Jeremy sort of term. Well, <laughs> dude, Ron Jeremy made a lot of fucking movies, but let's True. not get into that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Ron Jeremy was not really a, um, a, attractive to the female audience, That, but that's like, yeah, let's put that aside. Um, <laughs> no, I mean... <laughs> He was a stand-in for the average dude. Like, it was not supposed to be like, oh, yeah, women can't wait to watch him. It was more like, wow, if he can have her, like, anyone can. That was the, that was the appeal of, of Ron Jeremy. But nonetheless. I, I dined next to him at Saddle Ranch. I've seen him. Yeah, I've seen him around. He, he, he's he's not, not an uncommon figure to run into in, in L.A., uh, at least, you know, over the last 20 years. I, I digress. Okay, so I was just going to say that I can somewhat get behind her seeing him as a man's man in some way. And, you know, no, he's not traditionally, he's not a model, he's not good looking, obviously, 
but you know, could there be some appeal to a dude like that? It's theoretically possible. So I, I don't think it's like a huge problem with the movie, but do I totally agree with like the, the way that they sell it to us? No. So I guess I'm sort of in the middle there. I'm just going to point out that the clam casino is in Jersey. <laughs> it's like 45 minutes away. It's in New York city. So she it must've been like the greatest town. She must've been thrilled that he would take her that far out of town. All the way to New Jersey for the clam <laughs> casino. Oh God. I'm, I'm glad you I touched this, on that. I know this great place in Jersey called the clam casino. Do you want to have dinner with me? <laughs> Jesus Christ. No. Get out of my apartment, you fucking... Anyway. By the way, also, I will say her performance sold me that she was just, like, a really cool, open-minded, up-for-anything person that uh, had met sure. a lot... Yeah, right? Who had met a lot of people that maybe, you know, on the surface, they didn't seem all that charismatic or interesting, but that, but that she gave them a chance, you know? Like, she sells me on the idea that she's a, you know, a a free spirited person that doesn't necessarily, she's not like looking for a certain kind of man or something. And it's not like she says, you know, marry me or something like they just go out a couple of times. I, I don't know. It kind of worked for me because her performance sold me that she was this kind of person. Her performance made me question every relationship I was ever in (laughs) because like if, if she could that convincingly convey some interest in Joe Spinell, like was any woman ever really interested in me? I don't know. <laughs> she's good. You're right, John. She's, she's good. And she does give a credible performance, but it's a thing where he's like, that's what I'm saying. Like he calls her. He's like, Hey, uh, uh, I want to take you to, uh, I want to take you to dinner. Can you be ready in, in 10 minutes? And she's like, I'll be ready in five. And you're like, what the, I, I that really struck me as like she was totally just like a person that liked to go with the flow and she didn't have anything going on and it sounded fun and she didn't have to she didn't overthink it you know like I think she's she's done a terrible disservice by meeting this horrible man but I feel like eight times out of ten she probably just would have had a nice evening and met some interesting quirky character and gone on with her artistic photographer life she's just someone who makes bad decisions she's a, she's a... <laughs> that's harsh I mean look oh, wow. not everyone's a fucking maniac <laughs> Joe Spinell is obviously a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I can't disagree. All right, let's talk about Slumber Party Massacre. Rich, I can't wait to hear your rundown on this uh, very interesting film. I am excited to talk about Slumber Party Massacre. It's a 1982 film directed by Amy Holden Jones. It was written, in a manner of speaking, by noted feminist author Rita Mae Brown, originally under the title Don't Open the Door, although it's known to be, have been rewritten significantly by the time it was actually filmed. And it's the first installment in the Slumber Party Massacre trilogy, which is part of a larger Slumber Party Massacre universe um, that I'll get into a little bit down the line here. This one, though, let's just take it on its own. You're in Venice, California. We're following high schooler Trish, 
who has invited the girls over for a slumber party while her parents are out of town, only to soon find out that a power drill wielding maniac who will henceforth be known as the driller killer, although he's only known as Rust in this movie, is racking up kills in her idyllic neighborhood. So as I point out, uh, Brown originally wrote the the screenplay. I can't say that I'm incredibly familiar with uh, with her work, but I can tell you that um, I'm more familiar with the producers who repurposed her work, who wanted to make a serious slasher film instead. Jones, who would eventually direct this, what at the time was an editor who was seeking a directing project, and she got her hands on this script. She shot the first three scenes for a grand, and she showed them to the famed Roger Corman, who agreed to finance the film. Um, it's oft noted, if you look into this film at all, that uh, Jones had to turn down a uh, piddling uh, editing, editing job on Steven Spielberg's E.T. as a result to her commitment to directing this. Nonetheless, you can argue that it was a success. Uh, it grossed $3.6 million, but an estimated budget of, of $2,200. Not bad. And there have been two sequels to the film, other films in the Massacre series, and the Massacre series includes Sorority House Massacre and Cheerleader Massacre and includes a second trilogy from the Sorority House side, including Sorority House Massacre, the incredibly named Sorority House Massacre 2, Nighty Nightmare, and Sorority House Massacre 3, Hard to Die. Talk about a legacy. In terms of my take... This movie, especially for the time period, is really just the right amount of self-aware for my taste. While other films of the era, such as like Intruder or Blood Diner, maybe, uh, you know, even to a certain extent, uh, Blood Rage, who's gonna just who's just gonna live on in this competition, we're approaching the genre as sort of like a, a goofy wink. This one, I think, is one of the most distinct early versions of something that goes beyond parody and becomes something that is at least approaching satire. You know, it transitions well into like the from a horror to a horror comedy. There are little jokes that really work, such as the surviving girl at the three quarter mark where she has to get pizza from a dead guy and is concerned about the fact that whether the pizza is cold or the dead or the body is cold. There's the dead girl in the refrigerator that everyone seems to keep missing, complete with clever sound effects. And there's the girl running after the killer with a corded circular saw, only to realize that she's soon run out of cord. These got legitimate laughs out of me. And, you know, this movie has some wide-ranging criticisms. It's certainly saddled with this burden of being written and directed by women at a time when women were seldom getting opportunities behind the camera, especially in genre pictures like this. It seems to be labeled a feminist horror film by some or not feminist enough by other others. I am not a real scholar of feminist studies, and so I'll put that aside for the most part. And I will say that Amy Holden Jones herself has referred to the film as being about a virgin's fear of sex in terms of being the underlying theme, which I think is an interesting lens to see this movie through. What I can say is that I really appreciate how authentic the female characters actually feel from Valerie's failed attempts to befriend a new girl, or Courtney, the new girl's sister, experimenting with the idea of objectifying men, or even the weird casual sports talk of the girls at the slumber party. I think if you take the driller killer bits out of this, you've still got a clunky but mildly authentic feeling 70s drama that is admittedly dull, but it's a hell of a lot better than the cultural insight on the lives of teenagers that you, than you get from prom night 
or God help us Friday the 13th. Meanwhile, interestingly, the men are fools and eventually whippering cannon fodder. And elsewhere, the slashing itself is not especially memorable, but I do think that the cat and mouse stuff, like the chase scene in the school or the, the two guys who eventually try to man up and distract the killer with their by, by sacrificing themselves to save the girls are actually handled pretty well. And the drill itself also makes for a unique tool as it pokes through door after door and obviously plays as like a massive metaphor hanging over the film. The ending of this movie always really stuck with me. I love the speech by, by Michael Villela, uh, who plays the, the, the villain Russ. His, his sort of like uh, monologue about how he loves them, and it takes a lot of love for a person that does to do this, is really pretty disturbing. And I like the drill bit cut short at the end as a metaphor for his power being taken away. I mean, there's no denying that the nudity of this film is jaw-dropping in a typically Roger Corman kind of way, and the music is literally the Halloween theme just being ripped off over and over again from start to finish. But at a gloriously tight 76 minutes, barely even a movie, it's no meta masterpiece, but this is another one of those gems in Corman's storied career. It's a rote bit of genre trash with just enough brains at the helm to elevate it beyond its peers. I, for one, enjoyed this party, and I would be happy to drill it into it further, into its nuances. Excellent, excellent analysis there, Rich. Uh, Vic, I want want to first know, what's your reaction to that, and how much does it differ or jibe with your own response to the film? I think this film does have some undercurrents that lift it a little bit. One of the things that I thought about this was uh, the the plot setup is precariously similar to Friday the 13th, the final chapter, even though I believe it came out before that, insofar as you have an A story with a bunch of people in a house and then a B story with an older sibling and a younger sibling in the house essentially next door. You're sort of you're sort of tracking both of these stories throughout where your final girl is ultimately the person who's not been invited to the popular kid's party. So I, I thought that was, you know, I don't know, that's that's something different, especially if they did it before Friday the 13th. I actually, what I loved was the first kill with the, uh, the, the phone worker. If they had just left it, remember this, 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 phone worker is, is coming down of a ladder and this kid gets up the, the balls to go up and hit on her. And then he doesn't completely, you know, strike out and he's walking away and we see her yanked into the van. And as they're walking away, we see her up against the window. And I thought when they did that, I thought, Holy shit, if they, if that that's a really great shot. But then we have to cut into the van and see a bunch of blood splatter, you know, sort of randomly on van walls and those things. So it was it was almost a really good, really well done sequence. They couldn't pull away, you know, they they, they couldn't leave it leave well enough alone, I guess. It has, I'm gonna say, possibly the least convincing basketball scene ever. Uh it makes Teen Wolf look like the Jordan Bulls versus the Magic uh Lakers. <laughs> it's pretty, Agreed. It's pretty terrible. Um one of, there was a, one of my favorite bits where the, the, one of the girls comes home and somebody has decided to drill out a new peephole, like right as she gets to the door. 
So all of a sudden the drill just pops through. Right. Like, what are you doing? Just go. I'm just I'm just putting in a new peephole. Uh, so I, again, I, I found some of that stuff kind of clever. A particular genre trope that I want us to keep an eye out for. I noticed it here, but I think we saw it in, in, in Intruder and a lot of other movies too. Is the notion of of hard cuts away from like violence and screaming, and especially like if somebody's got a saw or something, there's a particular loud, violent scene, and you'll cut to a blender, you know, or something, uh, just as a as a juxtaposition of like, oh, they can't hear her screaming because they're making margaritas. Um, yeah, I mean, you know who mastered that technique, Vic, was Hitchcock. Like, is that right? Yeah, I mean, like he, he was like notoriously. I can't remember which film it was. But the like match cut that's frequently brought up in terms of audio is like a woman like screaming at a body, like cutting to like a train whistle like blowing out as it exits a tunnel. Like he was really good at that. I actually feel like this movie, yeah. like the the editorial roots of the director, actually come across pretty well in the fact that at least like those edits are thoughtful like and and trying to to connect in some way from like the previous scene to the last scene but anyways I'm, i apologize for interrupting no 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 that's that's very interesting please anytime you want to bring up hitchcock bergman Buñuel, you just you just cut me off <laughs> especially if we're talking about slumber party massacre um <laughs> i think there is some authenticity to the the interactions of these women in the slumber party yeah which i sort of appreciate like i like the the sort of sex positive Oh, look, like girls are thinking about sex, too. Girls are looking at Playgirl. There's something sort of honest about that. Now, it's undermined by the fact that they're nearly constantly nude uh, in all of these scenes. But uh, I, I did sort of appreciate that. And, yeah, like it's you really can't steer away from the the drill as a phallic symbol throughout the film. But the one thing that, that also occurred to me that I thought made this sort of interesting is the killer speech at the end, Rich, which you brought up, and I'm glad that you did, really felt like, oh, like it was anticipating some of the incel culture that we see today. Like that was mm-hmm. kind of what I felt about that. And I, that may be giving the movie too much credit, but I don't know. That's a that's a layer in in a stretch of movies that don't have a lot of layers. So I will say that I was I was moderately impressed by that. I think we may have just all decided that female nudity at this point is exploitation and we won't have any more. And you're only going to see male nudity and you know, if 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 that's what uh if that's what we all agree on, well, great. Fantastic. At a certain point, you you just don't get points for it. It's neither points. a positive or a negative. Mm-hmm. It doesn't right. it doesn't elevate a film anymore. I'm just saying, like anecdotally, I'm finding that there's a real aversion to it because, like, it almost by definition is wrong, and we're not going to do it anymore. And if you're going to see nudity at this point, it will be male nudity. I, you know, that's a huge conversation. I honestly, guys, I think that it's one we should have all on the line on this podcast because I think this is clearly a, a, a style of film that one of its, as you guys keep mentioning, and I'm not going to disagree, it's one of the hallmarks of the genre. I just find it really interesting how many things that I watch now where I'm like, it seems like that is just the mandate 
And you know how how do we how do we feel about that? Is that relevant to movies made thirty years ago? I don't know, but I mean it's just it's really interesting that that's where our culture is today. Female nudity is almost inherently not to be seen because it must be it must be retrograde somehow. But we'll let's leave that for future conversations. It's certainly, John, you know, do you, I'm sorry, John, do you, do you think there's going to be more nudity? Like, isn't this really the time to have this discussion? What if there's no more naked women in the rest of the, the competition? <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about that. I'm definitely not worried about that. Um, yeah, plenty of uh, the movies that we're going to be talking about. But I mean, I just think yeah. that as as we're bringing the the modern times to the conversation, the, the juxtaposition is market and it, it it's interesting i just want to say this about it and then because i agree this is going to be something that comes up throughout the podcast and i won't get too far into it where i have gotten to now halfway through this competition is that nudity for the sake of driving box office no longer elevates a film for me it's not it's not a bonus it's not a plus you don't you don't get a a, a boost from me in terms of how I feel about your film. And so it's, I'm not saying that I necessarily object to it, but it's not, it's not a positive. It's not a plus. Like just because you convince an actress to, to take off her shirt does not make up for a subpar screenplay or a subpar directing or an inability to concoct a sense of, of dread or, or suspense or horror in a film. I don't want to cut off Rich because I think he was about to say something. But yeah, I mean, I, I certainly am not saying that I go into these movies, well, you know, it sucked, but there was a lot of nudity. You know, I, I don't think I've ever said that on on any of these shows, and I never would. Wow, I just I realized this is one of the great American cultural issues in that, like, sometimes Europe, other places, criticize us for being so open to violence but being so prudish about sex. And I guess I am falling into that, you know, in that, that I'm, I am saying, well, this movie had good kills, but I would never say that it had good nudity. So that's something that I, I'm going to have to unpack. And I, I don't know what is right or wrong about that, but I certainly don't believe that all female nudity is inherently exploitation and should be abhorred in some way. And I think that in some ways, maybe we're moving in that direction simply because incels or whoever else, you know, are that's feeding their problems. And it's so thorny. It's so complicated. But, you know, I, I just don't know where I, I, I fully stand on it. But it's just fascinating that our culture has always been damned for, for loving violence and hating sex. And I think we're only moving farther in that direction. I'm not touching that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah, you probably shouldn't. I probably shouldn't be saying it either. I would prefer we don't spend a whole lot of time on this podcast, you know, damning these films for having boobs. I just, John, no, because look, if nudity is relevant to the story, then it's a worthwhile pursuit. Like nobody's criticizing the nudity in, you know, Lake Lees or La Ventura or something. Okay. These people are, are paying women to take off their clothes because it drives people to the box office. And there's something abhorrent about that. 
but are you really saying that the slumber party with these girls, do you really think that women like hanging out, they like they all like are wearing like sweatsuits the whole time? Like nobody's in their panties or whatever. I don't even remember specifically what y'all are talking about, but that the like when women hang out, they, they, they're like covered like in burkas. Like, is it so outrageous that some of them are, are you, are you suggesting that the nudity and slumber party massacre is, is driven by realism and not by the notion of titillating male viewers? I am not suggesting that, but the idea that, that, that we should in 2022 depict a scene where they're all like, you see nothing, which is the way it would be done. They'd all be wearing sweatpants and long shirts. And cause I see it in shows today, um, mostly TV, but I'm sure movies, I don't think that's totally accurate either. Okay. What is the dramatic, what, what is the justifiable depiction of nudity? Because if you put a camera in a shower, obviously we all agree that's wrong. So like, how would you, how would you ever see anyone naked justifiably in a, in a movie? The shining has, has, has perfectly justified nudity in it. And you won't get a, you won't get a, you won't get a word of complaint from me about the, even the, the woman Swedish in the bathtub with the, weird, mm-hmm. with, with the weird backstory that you concocted. Um, <laughs> You won't get a word of complaint. You won't get a word of complaint from me about that. But look, slasher, the slasher genre is the stain on the horror genre because the appeal of it, as far as its critics are, con- is, are concerned, is boobs and gore. Right. And so I am not as a 42 year old person who's watched 700 slasher films. I am no longer terribly impressed by boobs and gore. That is not a, there's not a bonus. You don't get extra points for having naked women in your movie. Right. You said gore too, but I mean, I guess that's what I was alluding to. How can we say kills are good, but boobs are, are not. No, I'm not saying kills are good. Okay. I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed because that's what I talked about. It was intruder. I'm not impressed because you cut a guy's head in half with a fucking meat saw. Well, sure. But you are impressed with like how Savini handled the effects in maniac. You just said Mm -hmm. so yourself five minutes ago. As, so as a as an as a, as an art of special effects, I am. But yeah, like somehow, but but I'm just I'm sorry. But like, how is that not prurient? I guess you know. Like we enjoy uh, ostensibly. We're on a fucking horror podcast. Let's be really honest here for a second. Like <laughs> I think we would be looking at rom coms or I don't know something else, some other genre. But like if our okay. We can, can we honestly admit we don't like watching violence? Let's start there. Let's no, just start there. Of course not, John. Okay, but we're but not look, supposed to I'm, like sex. Let me let me say this. I those things are no substitute for a good script, for characters that are motivated, for themes, for good direction. Fill your movie top to bottom with naked chicks getting hacked into various pieces by various different implements, and I will give it an F, no matter how realistically the hackings are and no matter how gorgeous the naked women are. Because that's not a movie. That's a snuff film. Okay, You have to put those things into a situation that is motivated, that is compelling to me, where I'm invested in the characters, where I care about their head getting cut in half. 
You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's and look, that's part of what works about this season is that that is the the part of the dichotomy of this, right? The slasher genre doesn't have a ton of that, but I'm again, I'm going to say it again. Next week there's a, a next episode, there's a ton of movies that I feel really strong strongly about. Like I have some actual ride or die movies in that. But Slumber Party Massacre, <laughs> it's not without some merits, but the fact that there's a bunch of chicks taking off her shirt doesn't move the doesn't move the movie from a C to a C plus for me. It's okay, still a but C. none of us, none of the three of us, would ever say that it does. So I don't know who you're arguing to in, in that regard. Like I'm not going to say that that moves it to a B. Or we've been doing this show a long time. You know, I wouldn't say that. Rich doesn't say that. So I understand what you're saying, but that was never the criteria that we're discussing, but going out of our way to, I don't know, damn the movie for that, I guess maybe that's necessary, but I just don't, I don't know that that's even germane to the conversation that we're having. I guess, look, John, all I said was that they have some some good authentic dialogue when they're talking, Yeah. But then I feel like it's undermined by the fact that they're taking off their clothes while they're having the dialogue. Okay. So a very specific scene I have in mind when I'm when I'm when I'm saying that. If you're going to give this movie some feminist credit for saying that these these women are having conversations that you don't see in slasher films all the time, that's great. Nobody's listening to what they're saying. At least certainly the boys aren't because they're watching girls in nighties stripping out of their clothes. And and I find that. Uh, undermines uh, the 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 positive elements of of again this one scene in particular, but other scenes. Fair enough, fair enough. Now I have comments on this movie, but I feel like if Rich wants to weigh in here about the conversation we just had, I want to give him that opportunity. You know, I mean, like you guys are talking about uh, a lot of a lot of ideas that are like bigger than just the, the conversation we're having here, but in, in the efforts of like, sort of like steering us back towards the bar and so to speak, I'll say that I will, I accept these movies for what they are. I think that they frequently, these films are exploitative by nature and that is on a number of levels and sex and nudity is just one of those qualities on which they're exploiting the desires of young people to appear on camera and the desire of theater goers to fork over their money to, to pay for, for tickets. And so I don't view that as a black mark. I don't think that it always has to be like strictly character motivated, but I do agree that there are good and bad ways of presenting it in the, the film, the same way that, that intruder had, you know, good effects. And it also had the, the eyeball in the olive jar. There are good ways and bad ways that you can present trashy culture and and make it interesting. Just ask John Waters. But, you know, in terms of like what this film is doing, like, and and this becomes more sort of like anecdotal to the film, but I think it's interesting because that question has really surrounded this movie in particular historically, I think partially because of its pedigree of the the people who made it. And it's been commented on a lot. Like, Jones has notably, like, gone on record talking about the fact that people often use that as a way of, like, tearing this film down. And the fact that she's like, look, at the end of the day, like, we were making, like, a Corman film, and no one has this discussion about the movies that, like, Scorsese and Coppola and Demi were making for Corman at the time. 
you know, and they were also making the same kind of trash. But people love to bring that up when you talk about this because women made the film, which in itself is inherently sexist, which, you know, I think that people like probably do talk about the fact that the the work that Scorsese and, and Coppola did was trashy for Corman. So I don't know that I totally agree with the with the argument, but it is it is interesting. But the point they're you making know, is that they're also being damned as hypocrites now. Yes. Yeah. It, the the other thing I'll say is that you know like it, the the other commentary I heard on this in terms of like what what how the director felt about it was she was like she was like you'll notice that the 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 way that like the shower scene in, in Slumber Party Massacre for example is shot is shot in this very like perfunctory sort of like dispassionate manner because like she was essentially fulfilling like an obligation that she felt that she had to do as a, as a matter of course for making the film for Corman and sort of like what the, what boxes he had to check. And I would agree with that. And that leads me back to like the essential like transgression that I think is, is against the film and it goes to what Vic is saying, which is that the nudity in this film is just poorly executed. I don't care if you're here to see naked women or not, the way in which it's presented is inherently uninteresting from just a mm-hmm. basic filmmaking point of view. I mean, there's the, there's the shot where it's literally like a camera panning along a row of showers. And as it passes each woman, she turns toward the camera to expose herself. Then the camera literally just tilts down to, to look at a woman's ass. Like that's unmotivated film filmmaking that essentially is, is among the lower ranks of like visual storytelling, even within this movie. So, like, I'd say that, like, you could take points off of it for just being poorly presented. I'm totally down with that. But in terms of, like, just being points off for the fact that there is nudity, like, I'm with you, John. Like, I would not take points off, like, strictly for the fact that there is nudity. Just to be clear, I'm not taking points off for nudity, but I'm not giving it points for nudity yeah. either. Which Un- understood. I, I that's my real point. Understood. I, I, would not, I, would not, I would not give points for nudity either. There may be some films... None are really springing to mind in this in this season, but there may be some films where I would give up points for for uh, for well executed nudity. But this movie is definitely not one of them. It is yeah. certainly gratuitous, but I would not say I I, ju- I judge on a uh, on a curve for uh, for gratuity. Right. I am going to say on the basis of this conversation, which I think is one of the the, the most genuine and the most passionate, uh, and I want to be clear that I do not in in any point of this am I sort of attacking either one of you or anyone for their opinions on these films. I'm just, this is just my scorecard when I'm looking at these movies, when I'm judging how I feel about them, because this is fundamentally competition, right? Yeah. Like which movie is better than the other one? What are the things that elevate a movie above a different one? These are the things that, that matter for me. And these are the things that don't matter for me. And so the, those are sort of the things I'm doing. But I'm going to say the fact that Slumber Party Massacre has has touched off this discussion. I'm voting for it over Maniac. Wow. Okay. Well, I haven't even said anything nice about the movie yet, and I'm about to. <laughs> <laughs> I I have a soft spot in my heart for this movie, uh, and I think the franchise does come from a female perspective in a way that most slasher films don't. And I think that's a big part of its charm. The scenes of the girls together have an authenticity and energy. I'm not sure a male writer and director could pull off or certainly don't with any consistency in this genre or others in the vein of Deborah Hill bringing so much to Halloween that John Carpenter couldn't. 
I think this movie has moments that feel more grounded and real and thus appealing than you get in the vast majority of slasher films. That said, it lost a few points in my most recent viewing because just objectively, as a film, it's in the same basic zone as most ultra-low-budget slashers of its time. There's nothing really inspired about the kills, the cinematography, the plot, the bad guy, the lead, or leads. Does it matter... A fact, the movie never seems to commit to who its main characters are, and that doesn't make it memorable in terms of individual scenes or moments. I like Slumber Party Massacre more as the sum of its parts than anything I can really point a finger to and say, that's great. I'll never forget that moment, that character, or this image. So that's that's where I stand on it. I, I obviously, I full of disclosure, I wrote that long before the conversation we just had, but I, I, I do think that it, it rings true, even more tr- true to me now after having just had that conversation. So let's, let's vote on it. Uh, Vic, you cast your vote. I think I'll, I'll pick it up here and let uh, Rich be the decider. If I were to be asked which of these two movies I want to see again, I would still say Maniac because... Well, it's probably it's it's probably less quote unquote fun. I do think it's a vastly more deep and meaningful part of the slasher film canon. I keep referencing that Vic said on an earlier episode about some movie it, that it was an inch deep, and I I think that that's mostly the case with Slumber Party Massacre. I don't think it really holds up as a feminist touchstone or something, because ironically, again, I wrote this days ago, but it's pretty compromised in that regard, and you guys kind of explained why. And whoever's fault that is, as a cinematic experience, it also just kind of flat out lacks the overall power of Maniac. I believe you know that (laughs) you're watching something special with Maniac. It has an energy that independent films sometimes do that just demands that your eyes stay riveted to the screen. Even if fun is not the word you would use to describe the watch. Rich seemed pretty put off by the implied morality of the remake or lack thereof. I would not have been surprised if he'd said, this is not a wholesome watch with your mother-in-law. And he he didn't actually say that, but I'm sure it's true. Um, I'm sure as hell not going to watch this movie with my mom. Or my mother-in-law. And my mom watched a lot of crazy movies with me when I was a kid, if you'll permit me this uh, digression. But she was my age now, back then. And I don't think that's a measuring stick for me in this process. By the way, the first time I watched Dawn of the Dead was with my mom. And I don't think she considers it one of her greatest cinematic viewing experiences of all time, but she did really get the movie and she encouraged me to get it too. And not to lose the thread entirely here, I'm okay with slasher movies not being representative of how I want teenage girls to be treated, let alone my own daughters were I ever to have them. I think Maniac is fucking riveting and I don't care if it makes people uncomfortable, including me. I just hope we don't get to the point as a society where we shouldn't have those uncomfortable experiences anymore. And I know that a lot of people would call that progress. The matchup is a walkover to me. And I am surprised that we have any disagreement on it, looking at this from the big picture perspective. I am voting for Maniac.
I don't really know where to go with this d- decision, to be honest. Like, I, I, I'd say that generally speaking, John, like, I would agree with your assessment that it is probably the more interesting of the two films in terms of its absolute commitment to what it is. And I do think that the character work, for better or worse, at least in terms of the character of Frank, I think is far more like committed and explored than anything you see in Slumber Party Massacre, which sounds like a ridiculous <laughs> phrase just on its own. I'd say that Slumber Party Massacre has a enjoyment factor to it that is that is not to be overlooked, which is which is uh, as as you put it, like I have no problem with films that are sort of like challenging to what you find enjoyable. Like that's not my issue as much as it, you know, like I'd probably enjoy watching some pretty massacre again. I don't know. I, I, I guess I really had my, had my mind made up about this and our, our discussion hasn't helped the issue at all. But wait, wait, let me, let me just throw out because like, okay, if you're still on the fence, cause you are the deciding vote here, Rich, I will just sure. say if it matters to you, I think that looking at, slumber party massacre will be a somewhat superficial conversation. Whereas I really do believe that if we look at maniac some more, there's just like a lot of fun layers to, to peel back. And uh, you know, I'm saying this not even so much as a movie fan, as, as much as somebody involved with the production of a podcast that wants good, good podcasts to be, to be made. So that, that is the argument that I'm, I'm coming at you from. That's, that's fair. We, we definitely just had a very superficial con, uh, conversation about Slumber Party Massacre. So. <laughs> but do we, I mean, ugh, I don't know if I want to go any deeper into that. <laughs> uh, Vic, I Vic, I I know you're not really especially passionate about either of these films or passionate yeah. at all here's, about either yeah. of these. Yeah, here's, here's what I'll tell you, Rich. Neither of these is the greatest <laughs> slasher film I've ever made. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> well, you know what? I enjoyed like all the all the nudity conversations aside. I enjoyed watching Silver Party Massacre. Yeah, I thought it was light on its feet. It was funny. I thought the character portraits were were really well done. There are elements of the killer I liked. There were a lot of elements of the killer that I found were incredibly like just like typical of of what you get for that time period. Given that I am I am conflicted on the fence, and and Vic, you're pretty ambivalent here. Uh, I'm going to do John a solid here, and I'm going to go for Maniac. Thank you, oh, Rich. No, Rich. Please, please don't. <laughs> I was going to say something like I owe you one, but I'm afraid to extend that, but I, I guess I will. <laughs> That's fair. I you'll, guess you'll, I will. You'll pay, you'll pay for that. Exactly. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a long and delicate balance sheet on this podcast and you don't want to be in the red, folks. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we have one more matchup to go. Let's take a quick break and knock this one out. Okay, well, given that this show was a lot to digest, we're going to take the unusual step of saving the last matchup for next time. That's right, this is going to end up being a three-parter. Catch you next time, March Mad people.